Now, if you are politically conscious, you are already aware that we have local elections next month, right? And uh, they are coming up, and hopefully all of you will be voting. It's, uh, uh, it's important to exercise your right to vote. Now, we vote, and if you live local, of course, you come and vote here. Um, uh, we vote in elections. Why do we vote in elections? We vote in elections because all of us, regardless of our beliefs, have that inner sense that we need leaders to enable us to live fruitful lives. It is part of how God made us. Uh, we were created to live orderly lives. And strong leadership, strong leadership, uh, exercised properly, should foster order rather than chaos. But there is something even more important than strong human leadership. And it is spiritual leadership. All of us in this room and the world around us, we were all created to live under God's authority, under his leadership. And so what happens is that when we as individuals and as a society reject God's leadership, reject his authority, his way of doing things, if we start doing things according to what seems right in our eyes, what then happens is what? Moral chaos. Look with me at verse 1 of Judges chapter 19, verse 1. This chapter opens with the slogan of Israel at this time. It says, in those days when there was no king in Israel. In those days when there was no king in Israel. And as we have noted before, Judges chapter 17 to chapter 21 is set in the early part of Israel's history in the land of Canaan. When the nation began to reject God, to follow, if you like, Alistair Campbell's uh, motto, we don't do God. That's the early stages of Israel's history. We are beginning to see the nation now decay. And the period of judges will follow this as God graciously tries to help them see something of his grace. But at this time, Israel has no human king. And the reason he has no human king is because God, by his sovereign providence and grace and love, has decided that he should be their king directly, to rule them. What a wonderful thing for God himself to be our king. But they have decided, no, that's not good enough. They are, they are already looking to just, you know, hoping, and we've seen signs of that, uh, hoping that, you know, they, they have to be like other nations. Uh, and this story... Uh, in Judges 19 is reminding us that when people long for to be independent, to live for themselves, moral chaos happens. So the central truth in Judges 19, and we're going to look at this in two sermons, okay? So the central truth, first of all, which we're looking at in Judges 19 is that living for ourselves rather than God leads to moral chaos. And as I said, we're looking at this in two parts. This evening, we are looking at a portrait of moral chaos. And then next week, we'll look at a depraved society. A depraved society. So this evening, a portrait of moral chaos, verse 1 to verse 21. Look with me again at that verse 1 and the first truth we learn uh, in this passage. And there are only two truths for you to remember today. The first truth we learn in this passage is that living for ourselves leads to chaos in our families. Living for ourselves leads to chaos in our families. So, 
we are back in central Israel. The province is Ephraim. We are at the home of a Levite, and he has married a young woman from Bethlehem. Look at verse 1. In those days, there was no king in Israel. A certain Levite was sojourning, that is, you know, moving to stay, in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, central Israel, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. He's taken on a wife from another part of Israel, a wife who has come to live in Ephraim as well. Now we know that this woman, this Levite has married, uh, is quite young actually. She's a young woman. We know that because later on in verse 3 to 8, she's referred to as a girl. She's called here a concubine. Uh, that means she's a second class wife. Now we are not told if he has another wife. That would be normally the case, but it's just that even if this is the only wife he has, he treats her as a second-class wife. In other words, at this time in Israel's history, women sometimes were married as a trophy wife for sexual favors. They were married as concubines. Concubines were really a trophy wives. And they'll be married, as I said, in addition to a first wife. But she's a trophy wife. She's a second-class wife. And at the beginning, it seems that everything is going well in this unequal marriage. And then the unthinkable happens. The woman has an affair. Look at this too. And his concubine was unfaithful to him. And she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah and was there for four months. The original word, by the way, for unfaithful there in the original Hebrew means she played the whore. And everything described in Judges is not figurative, it's literal throughout Judges. The, the author of Judges is telling us that she committed adultery with another man and then runs back to her dad. She's run back to her dad. Now, what would you do if you had a daughter who has committed adultery, and then runs back to you to stay with you. What should you do? Well, most parents today would just shrug their shoulders, wouldn't they? It's her choice. She's an adult. And uh, if she doesn't love that man, they would just shrug their shoulders. And that sadly appears to be the attitude of the girl's father. Uh, Instead of sending her back to reconcile with her husband, he just lets her stay. He just lets her stay. And the father's behavior, in some sense, has encouraged our immorality, isn't it? Uh, one suspects that if a woman or a man cheated on their spouse, they will be sent back by their parents to go back and reconcile. But because the father is such a man that is willing to just allow, this, allow, their daughter, allow the daughter to come back, it's actually encouraged her. If she was scared of what the father would say, if she even had an inclination that she would be stoned to death as the punishment at this time, rather than be protected by the father, one suspects she wouldn't have done this. The father's willingness to entertain our sin has actually encouraged her. And then as I thought about this scripture, I thought, many parents today are like this man. You see, instead of being a mother to their children, they are more interested in being their best friend. Our children certainly need to know that we are there for them. But they also must see and respect us as their parents. We must show leadership as mothers and fathers 
in the home to our children. They need to know that we are not fundamentally their friend. We are their parents. This father is making that terrible mistake of being a friend to his daughter and is aided and abetted that her action. So four months pass. The man starts missing his trophy wife. So he goes looking for her in Bethlehem. And as he goes there to look for her, he gets a surprising reception from the father-in-law. You think the way he's been behaving, uh, he wouldn't welcome him nicely, but he does. Let's look at verse 3 to verse 8. It's very interesting. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. He had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys, and she brought with him, she brought him into her father's house. He needs an extra donkey so he can take her back. He's optimistic. So he meets her. She brings him into her father's house. And then he go, verse 3 goes on. And when the, father's, the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. Verse 4. And his father-in-law, the girl's father, made him stay. And he remained with him three days. So they ate and drank and spent the night there. The two men are just patting together. Notice he remained with him three days. Not remained with the family. He's patting there, he's enjoying himself with the father-in-law. Verse 5, And on the fourth day they arose early in the morning, and he prepared to go. But the girl's father said to his son-in-law, Strengthen your heart with a morsel of bread, and after, you, after that you may go. So the two of them, just the two of them again, sat, ate, and drank together. And the girl's father said to the man, be pleased to spend the night and let your heart be merry. Let's keep patting on, he says. Verse 7. And when the man rose up to go, his father-in-law pressed him till he spent the night there again. And on the fifth day, he arose early in the morning to depart. And the girl's father said, strengthen your heart, wait until the day declines. So they ate both of them. It seems the Levite and the father-in-law have read it off. I mean, one suspects that if he met the girl in Ephraim, it's the chances that he's actually met the father for the first time. That perhaps, we, we don't know that, but perhaps we would imagine that. And they have read it off, and it looks like they're having fun together. But when you look closely at what's happening, something does not seem very right. First of all, where is the girl here? Yeah. She seems completely silent here. The whole thing seems hospitable, but it's only going on between the dad. The reason he came for it is just not, it's not the, the woman we think you'll be more about the woman than, than the father-in-law. And her father's behavior is also strange. I, did you notice it's almost like he's doing everything to prevent the man taking her? It's hospitality, but it's like, let's just keep drinking. It's almost like he doesn't want the man to take the girl. And the Levite becomes impatient, actually. Look at verse 9 again. And when the man and his concubine and his servant rose up to depart, his father-in-law, the girl's father, said to him, Behold now the day has went. So he's made him drink. Now he says, no, 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 you can't go now. Behold now the day has went towards evening. Please spend the night again. Behold the day draws to its close. Lord, ye, and let your heart be merry. Tomorrow... You shall arise early in the morning for your journey and go home. But the man would not spend 
the nine. Jesus paused there. He's, he's, he's grown impatient. The, the Levite has had enough of these delay tactics. This is what they are. The father has been delaying this man. And he just doesn't get it that he wants to go. So he decides, no, I'm going to go. Uh, he just wants to get away. So he grabs his wife and he heads off late in the afternoon. Let's read on verse 10. And he arose, verse 10, but the man who not spend the night, verse 10, he, ar- he rose up and departed and arrived opposite Jebus, that is Jerusalem. He had with him a couple of saddled donkeys and his concubine was with him. We pause there. We think about this story, what it's told us about this Levite and this woman and his father-in-law. We see that what we have here is a picture of moral chaos in the families in Israel. The Levite has a wife who is just purely a sex object. He could have married her as a wife, but he's chosen to marry her as a concubine. We have a young woman here who has committed sexual adultery. Sexual adultery is a, sex is a big thing, by the way, in this, as we'll see next week. He's married, she's committed sexual adultery. And it'll be very interesting as we look to next week what then happens to her herself. This woman is willing to sacrifice her marriage for selfish sexual gratification, as many people do nowadays. And then we have a father here of a woman who fails to fulfill his responsibilities. And he seems only interested in partying and drinking. And he doesn't even look very honest. And then you notice something else about this story as you read through Judges 19. None of them have names to them. All of them are nameless. The reason they are presented to us as people without names is to communicate to us that these people stand as a microcosm of families in Israel at this time. It is saying to us, look, This is what living without God's authority has done to her husbands. Like this nameless Levite. This is what is done to women in Israel. Like this concubine. This is what he has done to fathers like this father-in-law. This is what living without God has done to the family in Israel. Each one in the family does only what is right in their own eyes. Judges 21 verse 25 ends that way, doesn't it? This passage, friends, is a warning to all of us. If we relate to God on our terms rather than his terms, the first impact, the first impact is that we have broken families. I want you to notice something important about this passage. Notice this passage is not about the broken family of an atheist. Okay? It is chaos in the family of supposedly God's people. These people believe in the Bible. You need to understand that. These are God's people. So the application for us here isn't for some people out there who don't believe in Jesus at all, it's for us and our families who believe in Christ. It is saying to us, if God is not number one in your life, even if you profess faith in Christ, there will ultimately be chaos in your family relationships. There will be chaos in the way you let your dad. There will be chaos in the way you let your wife. There will be chaos in the way your wife relates to your in-laws. There will be chaos all over the place. 
Do you see the foolishness of human beings as you stare at this text? Do you see the foolishness of those of us who profess to be God's people as we look at this passage? I hope you see the foolishness before I even surface it out. The foolishness is this. All of us want what? Strong families. Strong marriages. Well-behaved children. All of us want that. And that is wonderful. God loves the human family. I often say God is a fan of the human family. The human family is... You didn't come up with the idea. God gave it to you as a gift. God gave the family to you as a gift to you. It is a work of grace, we might even say. That God has done that. And he wants us to treasure our wives. He wants us to treasure our husbands. He wants to treasure our children. But here is the foolishness. Here is our foolishness as God's people. Often. Many of us don't see we get strong families by first we ourselves having a strong relationship with God. That's how we get strong families. You don't get strong family by you working at your family. I mean, that will come. The order, that's quite important, of course, but that's not why you get your strong family. You get your strong family by working at the relation with God. In fact, surrendering to God. But the foolishness is that we are bought in this lie that the world gives us that we must put our family first. And so what happens is that many of us here are trying to fit God into our family. Rather than fitting how we live as a family into our life with God. We worship our families. You see, when you're trying and fit God into your family, you never invite non-believers in your home. Because even though you know God wants you to do it, His opinion does not matter because it what? It will disrupt your family relationships. The most important thing is to have an orderly family, right? That's the God you worship. But the most important thing to God is you reaching out to the lost. Amen? He wants you to reach out to the lost. You see, when you try and fit God into your family, you only do church activities that your family shared you arouse rather than what God wants you to do. You only do activities that fit into your family shared you rather than fitting your family around the family of God. Because you know God's will is that his church, uh, his people, his, his community of believers should be built up. And of course, those who try to fit God into their families rarely sacrifice anything for God unless it is okay with their family. It's important you understand this truth that what I'm, not, what I'm getting at here is not that our families don't matter. What I'm getting at is how you can have strong families, Right? We only have strong families if we put God as a priority. That's what this passage is teaching us. When we live trying to fit God into our family, we are shooting ourselves in the foot. Because God gave you your family, and without Him, everything crumbles. And it's so tragic when I see that in the lives of people. Because they're shooting the giver. If you keep worshipping your family, in the end, it will be swallowed up by the moral chaos. 
Because friends, how are you really going to love your husband if the love of God isn't poured into you? How are you really going to love your children if you are not learning from God in terms of how he loves you? The closer you get to God, the more you get to him, the more your family will be strengthened. Right? Because you'll be able to take a lot of rubbish that's coming back at you from your children, your husband and others, and you'll be able to show love. Friend, God loves the human family, and we love our human family stronger when we put God first, when we rearrange our lives around Him. That's point number one. Point number two, and it's the final point you'll be happy to know. The first thing is that living for ourselves leads to chaos, first of all, in our families, but it also leads to chaos in our society in general. Let's go back to the Levite. The Levite and his woman are on the way home. But as expected, because they are leaving late in the afternoon, they need to find somewhere else because it's getting dark. So the servant of the Levite, the other man who's with him, so there are three of them, the Levite and his concubine, and he's got a servant, and the servant is um, getting worried. <laughs> I suppose he's supposed to be a bodyguard, I guess. So he's looking around, it's a bit dark here if we're attacked. I need to protect my, uh, my boss, so I better preempt this by simply finding shelter. Let's find shelter. So he suggests they lodge somewhere else as soon as they see signs of civilization. Look at verse 11. When they were near Jebus, that is Jerusalem, the day was nearly over, and the servant said to his master, Come now, and let us turn aside to this city. Let us turn aside to this city of the Jebusites and spend the night in. But his boss disagrees. Look at verse 12. And his master said, We will not turn aside into the city of foreigners, who do not belong to the people of Israel, but will pass on to Gibeah. The Levite wants to go, doesn't want to go to, the, to this city because he wants to go near his people. I, I, he's an interesting character, this guy. I mean, he's so inconsistent, but I'll leave you to do that study. I mean, the way he's behaving, you wouldn't think he's worrying about the fact that they are not God's people, but in his mind, he thinks if he's near where, with his people, he'll receive good hospitality. So he's actually just saying, look, you know, if we live there, if we, if we go somewhere near like Gibeah or Ramah, we'll get good help and we'll lodge us in. We can't trust these foreigners, he says. Look at verse 13. And he said to his young man, come and let us draw near to one of these places and spend the night at Gibeah or at Ramah. So they press forward and they arrive in Gibeah, verse 14. So they passed on and went their way. And the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. And they turned aside to go in and spend the night at Gibeah. We pause there. We see that they have arrived in Gibeah. This is an Israeli town. Uh, This is a town occupied by the tribe of Benjamin. And if you have ever traveled during the dark, during the night time, and you're worrying for your safety, and when you finally get home, you have a relief, isn't it? I mean, I've done this before when I've traveled in Zambia uh, through places that looked a bit dodgy, as it were. And when you get home, you're like, yeah, praise God we go here safe after a day's journey. And they've had that. They, they are very happy, we can imagine. They are very relieved that they are there. And we can imagine that they're just looking forward to getting a nice, warm bed. But, as, as, but the more time they spend in Gibeah, the more they sense something is wrong in this town. It's like one of those zombie towns you see on movies. Something doesn't look quite right here. No one is taking them in. Everybody's 
hush, hush. You know, they're not interested in them. Look at this. Verse 15 continues. And he went in and sat down, that is the Levite, in the open square, for no one took them into his house to spend the night. Uh, this is difficult for us to understand because if you went to Newcastle and, and, and you were in Times Square and you became homeless, no one would take you in. You wouldn't really think it was odd. <laughs> but in this time, hospitality is key. And many towns in, in Israel at this time, they don't have a hotel, okay? There's no hotels. The custom is that when residents travel to towns like this, they are entertained by the locals as a traveler. It is the most sacred duty in the Near East. It is the most foundational of all their relationships. Foreigners are looked after. Travelers are kept for. And the Bible itself gives many injunctions about looking after the stranger. It is simply stating the obvious. But here it seems no one is interested. And we can imagine as the travelers are there, all of a sudden, they have to start making their bedding. And they are wrapping themselves up in their cloak to keep warm outside Gibeah's Broadway, so to speak. They are, they, are, they are stranded there. There's no one who wants to take them in. Then suddenly, uh, an old man, fortunately, on his way from work, he's, he's not from around these parts, of, uh, from, from Benjamin. He's not from Gibeah, he's from Ephraim. He looks at them, he sees there's something wrong here. He lives there, right? And he's very worried. And he hurries over to see them. Look at verse 16 to verse 17. And behold, an old man was coming, coming from his work in the field at the evening. The man was from the hill country of Ephraim, where they come from. And he was sojourning in Gibeah. The men of the place were Benjamin. So it's not, from, it's not local. Verse 17 says, And he lifted up his eyes and saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, where are you going and where do you come from? And just in those two questions, you can sense the agency in his question. He's worried about their situation. And the Levite quickly senses an opportunity for a warm bed. Look at verse 18. And he said to him, we are passing from Bethlehem in Judah to the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim from which I come. I went to Bethlehem in Judah, and I am going to the house of the Lord. <laughs> As you find out next, well, in, in June, actually, when we return to this part, the, 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 the Levite, he likes to spice things up. He doesn't always tell the truth. And it seems here, he spices it up a little bit to say, look, I'm a, I'm a Levite, I'm going to the house of the Lord. When we know from the beginning, he's just going home. But now he's saying he's going to Shiloh or somewhere like that. For some reason, he's now, you know, adding things in. He says, but no one has taken me into his house. He says in verse 19, we have straw and feed for our donkeys with bread and wine for me and your female servant and the young man with your servants. There is no lack of anything. The, 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 he's saying, look, I can pay for myself. We'll look after you. Just take us in. Look, we also don't want to be here. Just look after us. I've got, I'll take care of everything. But the old man is actually very happy. He knows it's bad out here, outside. And he's just very happy for them just to get in. And he, he offers. He says, look, I'll take you in on, under my expense. Look at verse 20 to verse 21. And the old man said, peace be to you. I'll care for all your wants. Only, only do not spend the night in the square. So he brought him into his house and gave the donkeys feet and they washed their feet 
and ate and drank. And the old man, notice in verse 20, the old man is hinting that something is not right in Gibeah. I hope you didn't miss that in verse 20. He says, only do not spend the night in the square. He said, look, come to my house. Whatever you do, though, don't stay out here. Don't stay out here. Come to my house, but whatever you do, don't stay out here. And we'll see next week why the old man is worried. Uh, there is something that lies underneath Gibeah. Scary. A evil in this city. He has taken all of this city, and we see some of that. I don't mean literally underneath, as you know, figuratively speaking. This city is engrossed in serious evil, and you can read about it from verse 22 to verse 28. So look at that next week. But he's saying, do not spend uh, another minute outside. But even here, we can already see just from what the old man has said, what the situation is, the fact that they haven't been taken them in, that something is wrong in Gibeah. Moral chaos has led, not just to a disintegration of the family, but wider society. Gibeah is inhospitable. It is a moral desert. As I've said, to refuse hospitality in Israel is like refusing someone a glass of water today. It is that basic to bring a person into your house when they are traveling. And so what they've done is they've refused these travelers a common courtesy. And he's taken a stranger to come and offer that. The Bible is telling us that moral chaos has destroyed the most foundational social relationship. There is no love for others in Gibeah. It is a dog-eat-dog world. And friends, these verses are reminding us that where people live for themselves, it corrupts the very fabric of society. Sin robs us of a true society. And as I thought about these verses, I looked at the country today. I looked at our society. It is clear that in the UK now, we are living in our own Gibeah. And we'll see it more clearly next week. But it is obvious that this nation is riddled with selfishness and sin. Sin is king. Uh, the country, the UK is a country that is not built on the fear of God, but on the fear of sinful man. We are now ruled by Twitter in this country. It's a fear of public opinion, fear of sinful man that dictates what's done in this country. You know, we are told by UTV experts that faith is just a private matter now. But you see, friends, this passage is showing us where God is not the center of our lives, there's no objective moral authority. And that doesn't just erode the family unit, it disintegrates society because morality becomes a matter of choice. Anything goes is the motto in the UK at the moment. And when you look at the UK, it's not different from Israel at this time because the UK, like Israel, has a strong biblical influence. The Christian presence in this country goes back all the way to the second centuries. A few hundred years after the first apostles, Christianity came in. It is beyond dispute. Christianity has shaped Britain for good, including the very precious freedoms we have. But moral chaos now is dismantling everything that has been built for generations. 
You see, where sin reigns, there can be no love for others. Why? Because sin turns us into a broken society where neighbor fights against neighbor. You know, in the words of Emily Dickinson, the soul selects our own society, then shuts the door. That's what Emily said. The soul selects our own society, then shuts the door. That's what we have now. And that's what sin has done to Britain. When I look at Britain, it is difficult to disagree with the man who said, the lunatics have taken over the asylum. We are living in an asylum of sin. And the lunatics are running it. The public leadership is pro-sin. Public doctrine on the sanctity of life and marriage, derived from the Bible, has all but been pared down. Christian leaders are routinely ridiculed by the media. Britain now looks to humanists, libertarians, scientists, and socialites to define itself. Meghan Merkel will have more influence on the direction of this country than the Bible would have. That's where we are at at the moment. We are ruled now by socialites. And this is the moral chaos of sin. Rebellion against God in the UK is leading to self-pollution. Increase in pornography. Pedophilia. Do you know the debate now is about law in the age of consent? The debate now in the UK is about whether pedophilia is just a disease like any other. This stuff, you read them in the news now. Gender by choice. You see, Britain, like ancient Israel, has forgotten that a society without God is not a free society, friends. It is just a prison controlled by fallen human beings. And unless Britain turns to God, this cycle of rebellion and moral pollution will continue more erosion of our society. Now all of us here as we sit here this evening, we face a question. Do you understand that this country is suspended over the flames of hell? Do you understand that's where we are? We need to ask ourselves that. Because if we understand that, then we should be broken for the situation. Because I fear when I look at many of us as Christians, yes, we can shout and be cry what's going on, but we are like the old man in Gibeah. The old man knows something lies underneath Gibeah. But he hasn't moved out. And I'm not saying let's relocate, no. But spiritually, it still seems there. And actually, next week, you see that actually it's not really that different from the monsters lurking in the dark. He's a nice guy, but we'll see next week that he was still lurking in this man. I'll leave you to study it uh, tonight. Uh, is, that the, the, is, is the church, the old man in Gibeah, comfortable in his own confines and flirting with evil as it sees fit. We, are we just minding our business? Not really broken about what's going on around us. Because when, if we're broken about what's going around us, it should move us to pray. Prayer continuously, shouldn't it? Prayer should be the theme. If we are broken about the in the UK, we'll be trying to save every soul. 
Because the UK is on fire now. It's like a house on fire. We should be out there snatching, as, as Jude says, sharing Christ who become part of who we are. But we don't do that, do we? Many of our churches don't share Christ as we should. As individuals, we don't prioritize sharing Christ. Because we don't see the state of the UK as God sees it. He weeps over it. And the main point here is, friends, is that living for ourselves leads to moral chaos in our families and in our society. And we know at this city this evening that the answer to this moral chaos is only King Jesus, isn't it? Verse 1 tells us, doesn't it? In those days there was no king. Oh, but there is the king of Israel. He has come, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the good news of the Bible. He has come. He offers us his kingship. He has come to die for us on the cross. And all who surrender to him can be rescued from this moral chaos. And he has come to share his life with us. As we saw from Psalm 23 this morning. He has come as our provider, our protector, our friend. And if we are trusting in him, we inherit all God's blessings. His life becomes our life. In the world without Jesus as Lord, there is only moral chaos. But in a world with Jesus as King, there is order, love, goodness, and security. But this is only available to people who have truly surrendered to Jesus as their King. There is no benefit even for the country if we, people are not repenting and coming to Christ. But it is only for us if we have to return to Him. And so we must surrender to Him. And I don't mean as a one-off decision of surrender. No, we become children, yes, we are justified. But trusting in Christ is an ongoing exercise. Surrender now and continue to surrender to him. Are you trusting in Jesus this evening? Well, come afresh to him today. Confess areas where you are putting Jesus second. First of all, confess your flirtation with the moral chaos in the country. Confess that you yourselves... Put God second sometimes relative to family even. Confess that you yourself are just as bad as the Gibeonites. And therefore you need the grace of God because we are all sinners. And ask God to begin transforming your heart. But also ask God to start changing this country. Beginning with yourself. To give you a burden to weep for what's going on in our land. Oh, friends, don't leave it up to the Christian Institute and Christian concern. Ask God to give you that burden for this country. Ask God to begin helping you to take the good news to people around you. And I just want to say to fathers, especially here, brothers, I mean, I wish my wife wasn't here because I have huge problems in this area as well. Let us examine ourselves. Let us examine ourselves. Because if Satan's attack is on the family first, we have to cry out to Christ to help us show spiritual leadership in the home. The revival starts here in our families and then goes out there. Politics and media campaign will not hold back the tidal wave of moral collapse that is rampaging this country. 
Only the power of Jesus can change the hearts of people. Jesus is the only way, truth, and life. So let us go to him, our great high priest. And he will show us mercy. He will help us in our time of need. As individuals and as a country. Amen.